still is still appointed duty. They keep trying to tell me. Welcome back to The Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, joined here by my host and star of this show, Jerry Trupiano. This is On the Record with Jerry Trupiano, episode 475 on the network. Before we bring Jerry on, our great guest today, uh, Pack Show, this will be the first show of a quadruple header Thursday. So before we bring them on, just want to make mention of our hosts or our sponsors, I should say. Millions is our new marketing partner. If you go on Millions site and you click on Book Me, advertisers, you can... Put a proposal out to us, and we'll look at it same day. And I'd uh, love to work with different products up there, different companies that we can help grow just like we have with our 70,000 subscribers, 74 countries. Also, you can book our host for speaking engagements on that same little tab right there. It's called Book Me. Second one is Shop on the same site, Millions. On Shop, you can look for our merchandise, which is hoodies, T-shirts, and hats. You can also line our guests, our hosts up for experiences, which is basically you ask them a question in their expertise and they will get back to you in 48 hours via email video. And uh, it's a great way to get to know our hosts a little bit more intimately. Also want to thank Jaw Bats, the newest certified bat in Major League Baseball. Use RVG at checkout. It'll get you a discount on that bat. My son Tanner's using his M110 model, lefty and righty. Jeff Fry hit a pull side double down at Fantasy Camp. So as he said, it's got to work. Uh, also the Kinetic Arm, the newest, most innovative, patented way that we think can help save some of these arm injuries. Uh, if you... Use RVG DAG at checkout. You'll get a discount on that as well. It offloads the stress externally on the shoulder, prevents arm lag. It's a multi-joint dynamic stabilizer, and it aids in deceleration. Also want to thank one-on-one College Pathway Program that helps with our production costs here. They've helped over 700 kids obtain athletic scholarships in the last four years to the tune of $540 million. So let's support one-on-one College Pathways. Their Twitter handle will be in our show notes. Also, our final one is Monet. It's a self-care hair product. I've been using it for a week now, and I, I value my hair. So my wife seems to like it. The kids say it, it looks and smells and feels cool. That's all the validation I need at the age of 50, Jerry. So with that, I'll turn it over to the star of our show here, Jerry Trupiano. Welcome back, Jerry. Thank you, Dave D'Agostino. We're happy to have with us former Major League pitcher, now a broadcaster with the Houston Astros, Steve Sparks. Steve, how are you? Jerry, I'm doing fantastic. It's a, it's an honor to be with you tonight. Um, uh, this should this should be a great conversation. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I'm not Steve. I'm not a betting man, but if I was asked to place a bet, I bet that you're going to be working right through October. I think you guys are pretty well loaded again this year, aren't you? Well, that was a safe bet the last seven years, making it to the at least the American League Championship Series. So we've been. We've been very lucky and privileged to be on a very good run and riding the coattails of this team. It's been uh, just maybe a little bit short of a dynasty, but it, it feels like uh, the expectations are massive in Houston, and uh, they've been delivering year after year. You've been with a few major league clubs during your playing days, but there's nothing like winning baseball, is there? There's not. You know, It just makes everybody happy. Everybody feels good. Uh, you go to the ballpark, and you're real positive about the work that you're putting in. And, and when you get good results, it makes you feel like, you know, my preparation, I'm doing the right thing. So that gives you a lot of confidence. You got a new look in the dugout, right? There is. Joe Espada was the bench coach the last five years. Uh, Dusty Baker retiring. So uh, 
uh, Joe Espada takes the reins. So it seems uh, to this point, we've been in camp for a little over a week now, uh, seems very seamless. You know, everybody knows him very well. Uh, Joe Espada uh, was a second round uh, draft out of the, for, from, uh, for the Oakland A's a, a few years ago. He was teammates with A.J. Hinch and A.J., a few years ago, brought him on board here with the Astros, plucked him for the Yankees organization. And uh, he's just very well liked. He's well respected. Uh, he can do things in, in different ways. You know, he can have that one on one conversation uh, and he can be stern enough to, to get his point across. So I think it's a perfect blend right now. I think the entire coaching staff uh, offers a lot of different uh, personalities. And uh, I think they're just going to hit the ground running like they have been. And everybody knows one another, which should make for a smooth transition. That's it. You know, you, everybody trusts each other. They, you know, you don't have guys crossing over into somebody else's area. Everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing. Of course, Joe's in charge and, and what he says goes. But, you know, and now it's not just the coaching staff, Jerry, as you know, is, you know, it's the front office, too. It's the, it's the general managers, the three or four assistant general managers. It's the analytics team. You know, a lot of people. Uh, are coming into the scene to, to get their work uh, in, in what they've researched in there to, to help a team win a certain ball game. So, uh, but at the at the end of the day, it's going to be Joe Espada making those tough decisions. But he likes that information. And not to take anything away from him, but his job becomes easier when your leadership, when your better players, your best players are also among your hard workers. And I'm thinking of guys like Altuve and, and Bregman and Verlander. You got some leadership on that club. That's the key to it all. You know, and Bagwell and Biggio kind of set that standard years ago with this Astros organization. And I'm sure they had guys before that, but everybody kind of goes back to them. They were the hardest workers. Uh, you know, they they played the hardest. They, they posted up. They played hurt. All those things. It reminds me. Uh, somebody told the story about uh, George Brett not too long ago when a reporter asked George Brett a couple weeks shy of his retirement if he had thought about his last at bat and what he would like to happen. Did, did he want to hit a homer or, or how about a double since he'd hit so many doubles throughout his career? And George Brett looked at him. He said, you know what? It's a good question because I have thought about it and I don't want to hit a homer and I don't want to hit a double. What I want to do is I want to hit a two hopper right to the second baseman and run as hard as I can to first base to show everybody in our dugout how to play this game. So uh, I, I think that's a perfect example of the leadership you're talking about. Yeah, that, that is such a great story because that is that is something that everybody that wears a big league uniform should have in their makeup, but it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't, you know, but when a Hall of Famer, you know, says something like that, it's just a huge impact. And if I could place uh, some purchasing of a stock in a player, I think I'd look at uh, Jordan Alvarez. What a future that guy has. Yeah, I'm not so sure I would take anybody else uh, as far as left-handed hitters in, in baseball right now. And I know there's a lot of great players. And sometimes you, you feel like a homer when you make a statement like that. But, you know, the, the things that you see he do he does is so mature, you know, to be a young player. But you know, somebody who can hit the ball from foul foul pole to foul pole with power, uh, who has a great eye at the plate and comes up in big moments. I, I don't think there's any better uh, hitter in the game right now. A very humble, you know, and uh, uh, always looking to learn. But, uh, man, right now, I, I don't think I take anybody up, uh, ahead of him when, when you're looking at a left-handed hitter to impact a baseball team. 
I'm taking Jordan Alvarez right now. And, and he's a middle-of-the-order guy, but I read today where a spot is going to hit him number two, or at least yeah. that's the plan at the start. That's the story that, you know, that uh, the biggest story so far that's come out in the last couple of weeks is is that lineup change. So the thought process is, you know, if you start with Altuve and, and then follow that with Altuve, this just or with Alvarez, it's, it's just such a, a nasty one-two punch right out of the gate for a starting pitcher just to try to get – you know, his feet underneath him and, and feel comfortable and, and confident about himself right out of the gate because those two guys can hurt you so badly. The problem is, is I, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm being devil's advocate almost. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Bregman is their best on base percentage uh, guy on the team. You know, and, and I, I kind of like Bregman batting in, in front of Alvarez because he has such a discerning eye. He's going to walk 100 times every year and that's going to give Alvarez. Uh, more chances, perhaps, you, you know, and I, I guess they probably have done the analytics on that and would probably say I'm wrong. But, you know, at face value, um, I want Alvarez at the plate because you mentioned this. I mean, I want the Astros best hitter at the plate with more people on base where they have to pitch to him as possible. And and that's probably going to mean like if he bats second, that the ninth place hitter is going to have to be impactful, too, as far as getting on base, too. Could it be as simple as the right-handed, left-handed thing, Altuve from the right side, Alvarez from the left side, or is that just too simple? It's it's not too simple. I, I don't believe that. But in, and I think a lot of people ha- have thought about that, and they've put those two back-to-back with, with Alvarez and Tucker. And there's been many occasions where other teams will bring in that lefty. And I'll be darned, you look at the splits, you look at the numbers, and even in impactful moments, it doesn't matter. Those two hitters in particular, uh, Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker, hit lefties just as well as they do righties. It doesn't matter which hand they throw with. Uh, they're not affected. One reason for Kyle Tucker, and he'll, he'll even tell you, is his brother who played the major leagues with a couple of teams, including the Astros, is left-handed. He says those wiffle ball games growing up, he was throwing balls at his left or his right ear all the time. So he, he's, he's been used to seeing that left-hander come at him with some nasty stuff his whole life, but uh, he's not impacted, you know, and neither is Alvarez. So hitting back to back, I'm really not too concerned about. I'm happy to hear that about those left-handed batters. And I wonder in this game, why people talk themselves out of a situation by saying somebody can't do something simply because they, they hit from the left side of the plate. If, if you expose those guys and the minors to those left-handed pitchers, chances are you're going to come up with a guy like that every once in a while that's going to be able to do it at the big league level. Yeah, but it's special, though, Jerry. I mean, th- there's just not a lot of guys like that. I mean, for the most part, you know, there's a reason why lefties come in to face lefties is because that breaking ball runs away from them, you know. And if you can't pick up the spin, like, you know, like some guys can, but if you can't pick up the spin and it comes out of a guy's hand, say a slider does, looking like a fastball, you see you see a lot of chase, especially with those top-notch you know, lefty relievers. So uh, I think those guys that hit lefties are, are few and far between, but the, the Astros happen to have a couple of them uh, that handle lefties very well. I was lucky enough to be around a guy who could hit lefties uh, very well and was a clutch hitter, David Ortiz. You have a oh, clutch yeah. hitter at the top of your lineup. They do. Uh, Jose Altuve, uh, uh, when you talk about clutch in, in big moments and uh, postseason home runs, you know, just whatever it takes, uh, he's been able to provide, you know, and, and it's always late and it's always important. 
And it's just one of those things where he's the type of guy who can slow his heart rate down uh, just enough to get the most out of himself. And uh, he relishes those moments. Uh, he loves, you know, it, it's kind of funny. He's humble uh, almost to a fault. But I mean, he loves those moments more so, Jerry, than anything is because he wants to help uh, his teammates. You know, and, and when he does something good, he feels good uh, about his teammates and that he's helping those guys, too. Looking at your ball club, you're going, to have a new, you're going to have a new closer this year, are you not? Josh Hader, that's right. So they've already said that Josh Hader is going to handle the ninth inning, you know, and uh, if both guys are available. But uh, Ryan Presley, in, in days that they're both available, will pitch the eighth inning. And Brian Abreu, who's emerged as one of the best relievers in baseball as well, will have the seventh inning. And they'll try to mix, mix and match. You know, if guys have thrown a couple of days, then, then the guys will slide around a little bit. I mentioned Justin Verlander earlier. What's what's his status? When might you see him on the field? He pushed himself a little bit and threw 40 pitches in the bullpen yesterday. He's probably a couple of weeks behind most pitchers in camp. Uh, uh, if he starts to throw a live here pretty soon after another bullpen, that would put him around March 8th to make his first start in the spring. And if that's the case, then he would line up to be able to start opening day. But it's really tight right now. If there's any setback uh, that happens before then, that might push him out of the, the first week of the season. And we'll just go from there. But right now it's Verlander, uh, Frambra Valdez, Christian Javier, Hunter Brown, and probably Jose Arquiti to round out the five. Uh, and if Verlander's not a- able to answer the bell, I think Ronel Blanco, uh, kind of an older Latin player who, who got a late start as a professional, uh, is kind of come into his own and they feel confident that he could fill out that back end if they need to. We're talking with Steve Sparks, former Major League pitcher, now a broadcaster with the Astros. And, and Steve, we, we've talked about your lineup. What about what about your starting pitchers? I think one of the most underrated stats in baseball would be innings pitched th- that your starters give you. How, how are the Astros in that situation? Well, it's interesting, Jerry. There's a couple of years ago when the Astros ran into the uh, the postseason and they really got on a roll. I think they were 9-2 and two in the postseason. They won the World Series against Philly, and it was pretty apparent that they were more fresh than anybody else. And the reason why that happened is because for half of that season, they ran out of six-man rotation. And you can only do that if you have the personnel, but here's what it did. You have a six-man rotation. Each pitcher, you can push a little bit further, maybe get a couple more outs out of each guy because he has more time to rest in between starts. The other thing does, when you're able to do that, then the bullpen gets more rest because they have less outs to cover on a nightly basis. And when they did that, and I think a lot of teams would probably, you know, if they had the personnel, would subscribe to that as well as the six-man rotation makes a lot of sense this day and age just because guys don't really go more than three times through the lineup these days. Yeah. The, uh, the lineup with Altuve at the top, and he just signed a big new contract, so he's he's locked up. But but Bregman is in his final year, and you know him. What what will his mindset be? Will that bother him at all? I don't think it'll bother him at all. You know, and, and I think he's he's all about winning and improving and, and doing his best to to go out there and help the team. You know, and they all say that, and I get that, but. There's a culture uh, within this team right now. As you walk in those doors, you expect to win. And by doing so, uh, there's an accountability to to work. You know, and the standard has been set by Altuve and Bregman, to be honest with you. And 
Uh, those are the guys that have been in the clubhouse the longest at this point after Brantley left, you know, and, and some of the other guys, Correa and Springer, some of these guys that have left, uh, it's those two guys. And they set the the work standard uh, and they, they, they expect people to be professionals when they come in there. Talking about Bregman, I, I know the team uh, really values his importance, what he means to this team not only as a player and not only the on-base percentage and the stellar defense and all those things and the big moments to play with big hits and big moments, uh, but it's also his toughness and maybe even his swagger, Jerry, is that uh, he, he goes out there and probably other fans, you know, he's the type of guy that you hate if you're, you're a fan of another team, but uh, around Houston and in that clubhouse, he's got a lot of respect because he, he's been a winner ever since he's walked into the clubhouse. Uh, the Astros have gone very deep, including a couple of world championships. How, how much are they going to miss Brantley? A lot, you know. Uh, you know, he rubbed off on guys. So, it, you know, it goes full circle, in, in, but they'll miss it. Uh, he said the right thing at the right time. He was soft-spoken, you know, a man of a few words. But when he spoke, everybody listened. And he took Kyle Tucker under his wing. Uh, he took a lot of these guys under their wings. But what I thought, Jerry, more than anything, is whenever he had an at-bat, you would always notice that it was like E.F. Hutton. Guys would pay it a little bit more attention. Uh, his teammates I'm talking about get on that front rail and watch him working at-bat. And to be able to lay off tough pitches and not get too frazzled with two strikes, things of that nature, I think that rubbed off on the rest of them. And what's the story with the young shortstop, Pena? You know, um, you, you look at a lot of the peripheral numbers and you say, okay, he improved his strikeout rate from his first season and he improved his walk rate and he improved his chase rate. He wasn't chasing break stuff off the plate as much as he was. The only thing that you could say about Jeremy Pena that wasn't as good as the year before uh, when he replaced Carlos Correa and did a great job was that he wasn't getting the ball in the air. He hasn't hit a home run since July 5th. And the reason why that happens, and you know this, is when the ball gets deep, closer toward the catcher, it's hard to lift it. It's hard to get the ball in the air or drive the ball through the gaps or hit the ball over the fence, whatever you want to say. But for extra base power, you know, the point of contact has to be out in front of the plate. And he was just having a hard time getting it out there. So if he had so... A lot of things going on in his swing, his setup, and his approach at the plate and his stance uh, that was making him tardy. What we're seeing early on in his first handful of bats in spring training is he made a big adjustment. Things are more uh, uniform, you know, maybe uh, quiet, you might say, as far as his, his stance goes. His hands are just moving, resting the bat on his back shoulder, and he's ready to fire. So if that's the case... I feel like he can start making more contact out front and driving the ball out of the ballpark again. Let's look at the, the rest of the division in the American League West, the Texas Rangers defending world champions. And is it is it too much to say it's a two-team race or could it be a three-team race? I think it's at least a three-team race. Yeah, I really feel like the Seattle Mariners will have a lot to say about that. Uh, the Texas Rangers were unbelievable toward the end of the year, and especially in the postseason, the way things set up. And, you know, you start looking at teams and in, in who gets hot at the right time, you know, usually wins the dance. And the Rangers certainly had something going for them. So their bullpen was a big struggle. You know, 
to get through the season. They blew a lot of saves. Their their bullpen ERA wasn't that good. But a couple of guys get healthy. Then you can send a couple of their starters out to the bullpen. And that was the case with the Rangers. And they were able to fill out a, a pretty nice pitching staff once everything, all the dust, uh, you know, kind of settled that, you know what, that w- wasn't really a, a detriment to the team anymore. And their offense was always good. So, you know, everything worked out in their favor because, you know, the way the playoffs are set, you, you know, you play two games, you have an off day, you might play two more or three more and have another off day. And you can kind of reset these guys and use seven or eight guys. And uh, they had seven or eight real good ones by the end of it. Uh, the Mariners pitching staff is fantastic. Um, I think they might have the best starting staff in the division. Uh, their offense has, has struggled in years past, but most of it was from swing and miss. And I think they feel like they addressed a lot of that and, and got more players to put the ball in play. And, you know, if you put the ball in play, at least you give yourself a chance. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think they'll they'll have a better offense because of it. Let's go back to the Rangers for, for a moment. Sure. If- if Jacob deGrom and if Max Scherzer recover from their injuries, what, what a staff they'll have. Yeah, that's the thing is, I mean, if you're the Astros, this is the way I'm thinking. I'm thinking the first half of the season better get off to a good start. These games in April and May are going to mean a ton because the Rangers probably feel like they can make up some ground with those studs coming out of the, the, the stables later on, right? So uh, whatever ground that uh, you can make, uh, if you're an Astro or Mariner or, or whoever it is in the division, or you know whoever else might be a wild card or whatever, I think the Rangers are poised to have a great second half. What did Bruce Bochy Bruce Bochy mean to that team? You know what I mean. He's just a, a calm presence. You know, I've been around him. I was in spring training with the Padres one year. It was he he was there, and I've gotten to know him in the off seasons uh, at some charity events and. Really, you know, he's easy to respect. He's just a gentle, uh, calming influence. I, I think the players felt like, it, you know, is it it almost like their their dads, you know, that they didn't want to let down. You know, he was a person who cared for these guys and was going to put them in their best position to succeed. And that's that's pretty cliche, but I think that's what's been his calling card forever. He, he's always run a, a really nice bullpen. He, he knows when to get pitchers out of there, being a former catcher. And has always had that magic touch. But I think more than anything, he, he gives a team, especially a, a talented contending team, uh, a shot of confidence because of his pedigree. And their pitching coach, Mike Maddox, is one of my favorite people. He, he does a good job. He's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he's, a, you know, you talk about threading the needle with old school and new school. I think Mike Maddox does it about as well as anybody. And uh, it's not easy. You know, a lot of people want to dig their heels in the ground when you talk about either side of the fence, when you talk about the analytics or the old school approach, use your eyes and stuff of that nature. But I think Maddox is able to understand each individual uh, and and understand how much information each guy can take or how much information each guy needs and probably deliver it in, in a, you know, in an easy way for somebody to understand. And I think that's what matters most to athletes. When we uh, talk about the Rangers and their pitching staff and pitchers who need to be healthy, I, I think we got to, we got to uh, list Nathan Avaldi in there as well. That's right. Yeah. You know, and he's had a couple of hiccups throughout his career, but when he's healthy, um, he's, he's about as 
big game uh, ready as it gets when you talk about pitchers in the last six or seven years who have performed at their best uh, when it matters the most. Nathan Avaldi is right there at the top. So uh, he gets a lot of respect from everybody around the league. Uh, everybody knows he's a gamer. Everybody knows uh, that he's a hard worker and he's not going to give in all those things that you want on your side. Uh, the Rangers have a Nathan Avaldi. And I think he's the leader of their staff at this point is, you know, they're waiting for a couple of other guys to get healthy. But in the meanwhile, I think it's Evaldi that's going to lead them uh, in the first half of the season. So you like the Seattle pitching staff. Correct me if I'm wrong. They're, they're a bit on the young side. And if so, do they need a veteran presence, either either in the rotation or somewhere in the bullpen? Well, they have Castillo at the top of the rotation. So I think that's their veteran presence. The the guy they got a couple of years ago from Cincinnati. So uh, he's a horse. He's a number one. There's no doubt about that. But I think they, I think they really have uh, another number one uh, just nipping on his heels in George Kirby. I, th- I think the world of him. I think he's he's a fantastic pitcher. I think he's a possible Cy Young Award contender. He's that good. I think. I mean, when you when you look at stuff and command, I don't I don't think there's anybody better in the American League. Maybe Garrett Cole, but that you know it's few and far between. You know, Logan Gilbert, you know, and Miller and Wu, these these young guys have great arms. Uh, uh, you know, it, who can stay healthy? I mean, that's that's going to be the big part of it. And, you know, early on, uh, it looks like the Mariners are going to be without one of their best uh, relievers in Matt Brash. We, we hear of uh, uh, an injury early on here in spring training. We don't know if he's going to miss much time, but uh, he's a stud out in their bullpen. So, And, and I know they're going to miss him. But if the if the Mariners can hit a little bit, and if they can score some runs and they got some guys back in the fold, Mitch Hanniger, uh, Julio Rodriguez is a superstar. Uh, they score some runs. They're, they're going to win a lot of ball games again. So Rodriguez is that good, huh? Yeah, I, I think he's – I would put him in the top five. Uh, if, if I was going to draft guys around the league, Acuna is in there, you know, and uh, I, I certainly think Julio Rodriguez comes to mind very quickly among the youngest the young superstars in this game that's going to be great for 13, 15 years. So we got to look at the other two teams in the division, and the Angels will have a new manager, Ron Washington, a, a veteran baseball man, and he speaks and, and, and likes the aggressive style and wants them to do some running and steal some bases. He does, but, I mean, he, he's he's a very disciplined guy. So I, I was around Ron Washington when I was playing with the Oakland A's, and I would come early just to watch him coach. You know, he would coach Eric Chavez and uh, Bobby Crosby, the Miguel Tejada, these guys. And I'd love to watch him coach because he was such a stickler for the fundamentals and doing things right all the time. And, you know, he said, you, you know, it's not about uh, practice makes perfect. It's perfect practice makes perfect. So uh, he was of that ilk and he's going to demand and expect a lot of the this Angels team. They've got a lot of talent on that team. I don't know if you've seen their catcher, Ohapi, uh, but, but he's a stud. Uh, and they made a lot of moves, you know, and if things pan out and if guys stay more healthy than they have in years past, they're certainly going to – there's going to be a, a team to reckon with. And, and Ron Washington is a big reason for that. He's he's a difference maker. You know, he's proven that he can he can turn teams around and he can make a difference in a clubhouse. So I think Ron Washington was a great addition. Uh, but I think they have a lot of talent to make some noise. When you look at the history, though, of the Angels, some of the big-name signings, free agent signings, 
really haven't panned out. So they hopefully for their fans, some of these guys will turn it around. Uh, and and they, may, they may not be big names, but they need some people to start producing. They do, you know, and a lot of that is centered, as you mentioned, Jerry, around health, you know, and they, they haven't been able to keep Rendon as healthy as they would like since they've gotten him uh, as a free agent from the Nationals. And uh, that's been that's been a big piece missing out of their offense, you know, protection uh, for guys like Mike Trout and such. Trout's had a hard time staying on the field for a ton uh, for some of these years. So uh, it's been a long time for them to get back to the playoffs and, and they're hungry. And I know uh, Artie Moreno, their owner, you know, if they're close around the deadline, we saw it last year, you know, when they could have sold off and, and seen what they could have gotten for Otani, they, they felt like they still had a chance and they went for it rather than selling him at the deadline. So that gives you a, a little uh, glimpse into the way he thinks. Otani, uh, interesting. And, and his departure, I, I, I got to feel that that takes some some air out of the balloon of the clubhouse. I think it will, you know, but, you know, it's sometimes this is weird to say, and I'm not saying this about Otani, but when there's a, a star player that gets all of the attention, I think sometimes guys kind of sit back and let, you know, almost just say, okay, go do your thing instead of just, you know, no, I'm going to be the guy. And sometimes I think when somebody leaves, I think guys can say, okay, now it's my turn to step up and collectively we need to do, you know, these little things to, to be as good as we were with Otani. He's the best player in the game. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes it helps guys when guys like him uh, depart. I think it gives them a sense of ownership in, in what they need to do. How much does Mike Trout have left in the tank? I think plenty. You know, he's a, He's a hard worker. He's a, he's a physical specimen, you know, and, and you look at the numbers when he's on the field, you know, they're astronomic. He's one of the best players still in the game. And it's just a matter for him is to, to keep his legs healthy enough to, you know, to go out there and play 145, 150 games to, to give them a real shot. He's so impactful. And he has been since day one that uh, he's always, he's always going to garner everybody's attention. Well, out in Oakland, that should be some scene to watch this year with them looking ahead to Las Vegas and what have you. It's it's almost like that's the land of broken toys out there right now. Yeah, and it's a shame because they have some talent, you know, and Mark Kotze, I think, has done a fantastic job with what he's had. Um, there's just not a whole lot of depth, you know, it makes things tough. But, you know, they came in and swept the Astros late in the season. You know, you just never know what you're going to get. And the thing that's tough about matching up with a team like that is, number one, they throw caution to the wind. But uh, they're, they're fast, they're athletic, and they present problems when they get on base. Uh, they run helter-skelter. Uh, they've got guys who can, you know, run into to, to pitches and knock it out of the ballpark. So, you know, it, it's a tough matchup for anybody. It's not comfortable. And it's almost like, you know, if you're into golf and you got a three-foot putt, there's higher expectations to make that three-foot putt, and that's why you're more nervous over that putt than the 10-footer. You know, when you face a team like Oakland and you're expected to win, sometimes you put more pressure on yourself, and they take advantage of that. They started 24 different pitchers last year. Yeah, you know, it's just it's the nature of where they are, and we understand what's going on with that organization and, and how hard that probably is to – to run it. And, you know, that's why I tip my cap to Mark Kotze and, 
his coaching staff and the, and the people there because those guys go out and play very hard. And, uh, you know, the circumstances aren't great, but uh, they still play a good brand of baseball. Do they have pieces? Do you think that they'd be willing to move to to uh, bring some younger talent in? Because they're they're always looking at the bottom line. They are, but but at the same time, with a move, I think you want to go over in whatever move that you make and whenever uh, it takes place, you want to go there with a with a good, you know, nucleus that you can build around. And I think they're starting to identify some players that they're probably going to keep in the fold uh, as we speak. You know, there's two or three young guys on this team that are pretty high draft picks that have made an impact already, and uh, I think they'll be there when the dust dust settles and they're in Las Vegas. So um, right now, other than that, it's kind of open tryouts. Of course, the Astros were running through that 12, 13 years ago. Uh, You know, they were running guys out there and seeing who might clear. And, you know, lo and behold, Jose Altuve emerged. Well, that's that's where Moneyball started out there in Oakland. Does does Moneyball work? I think so. Yeah, I think I think if you're not. an organization that, that is turning over every stone analytically, I think you're behind, you know, and I, I certainly think you got to scout well and you have to develop players very well. But I think analytically that the Astros has stayed near the top. And I think a lot of teams are, are, are in the same vein or are using analytics to their advantage. And they're looking for new ways to get an advantage to beat other teams. And, you know as well as anybody with uh, during the course of a season, if you can score maybe six or eight runs, sometimes that's two games that you might win, and that's the difference between going to the playoffs and not. And anything can happen once you get there. Yeah, but I, I, again, I guess I'm I'm showing a bit of prejudice here, but I I like guys like Joe Espada and Ron Washington and Bruce Bochy and the veteran baseball guys, and that that's a balance that that the game has to find. I, I agree. You know, and, and like I said, it's it's hard because people dig in and, it, you know, it, it's I, I think if people are would be just a little bit more flexible and listen and, and you know, and you don't have to shove everything down every type of players throats to, to try to get their, their best. But if you can figure out ways like to maybe manipulate your lineup a little bit or to take advantage of um counts and understanding uh you know the other team's tendencies and just try to dig into everything that i i don't think that uh there's any coach that would deny that information and try to use it to the best of his ability i like the coaches who do this they'll keep a card and they'll have some tendencies you know and, and they'll put on like you know they'll they'll know that a certain pitcher on a 2-1 count is more apt to throw a breaking pitch so that's when that's when i'm going to send my runner you know, the, when they know stuff like that, I think that that only works to their advantage. All right, let's let's pin you down here. Is it is it going to go down to the wire again? Uh, let's, for argument's sake, let's say it's a, a two team race: the the Astros and the Rangers. Are they going down to the wire again, or does somebody pull away? I don't think anybody's going to pull away, and I think there'll be some. You know, teams will will have uh, some streaks like they did last year. You know, you might win. 10 out of 12 games on two or three occasions. And then you might lose five or six and get swept by a team that you're not expected to lose to. And I think it'll go like that. And I think more than anything, you, you look at depth and what does the team have at the AAA level or at their disposal to, to fill in 
if somebody does go down for an extended period. The last year that the Astros had Altuve break his hand or break his wrist in the World Baseball Classic, if it wasn't for Mauricio Dubon stepping in for two months and doing a phenomenal job, I think the Astros may have been out of it by the end of May. But he did a great job and he held held down that position, played well, and the Astros were able to, you know, keep their heads above water until Altuve came back. So things like that matter during the course of the season. It's who steps up for somebody who goes down because it's inevitable. Somebody's going to go down two or three guys probably during the course of a season. What kind of depth do you have? I can't let you get away without talking about you, you belonging to a unique fraternity and that being you were a knuckleball pitcher in your day. Yeah, there's not n- not any around anymore. There's a there's a kid with the Padres that fooled around with it a little bit last year, and we haven't seen too many guys throw the pitch lately. Bob Melvin, uh, a few years ago when he was managing Oakland, tossed me a baseball in the dugout before a game when we were talking to Bob, you know, about his team during the scrum. And he tossed me a baseball. He said, hey, do you think you could throw a knuckleball with this? And I grabbed it. This is about four years ago, five years ago. And it was when the home runs were flying out of the ballpark. And I'll be darned. I, I tried to stick my fingernails into the baseball. I said, you know what? I can't. I, I would not be able to. It was like it was like a cue ball. Uh, and being so hard, not being able to grip the ball and it being slick, it, that, I'm just saying, man, I don't think a, a knuckleballer would survive, you know, with that with that baseball. But it's gone back. You know, there's a little spectrum that Major League Baseball plays with as far as the hardness of the baseball. And right now it's a little bit more uh, to like when I was pitching there where you could dig in there a little bit and get a grip and it wasn't so slick and you could throw it again. But it, it kind of it, it's gone in waves. You know, Jerry, as you know, like somebody throws a knuckleball and starts to have success then people get pretty excited about it and think that they they might be able to give that a shot. But it's harder to develop guys like that because you're taking away innings from a guy who might be throwing 95 miles per hour with great spin rate. And what are you going to do with this guy? Are you going to give him six or seven innings every five days? Some teams aren't willing to do that. Who taught you the pitch? You know, Billy Castro and a guy named Bruce Mano with the Milwaukee Brewers at the time uh, came up with the suggestion. You know, I was having a hard time getting out of double A with my normal stuff. And they suggested that I might, you know, give that pitch a try. I'd never thrown one. And they gave me a three-year plan. And I figured, you know what, it's either this or I'm going back to work right now. So I love baseball. And I thought, you know what, I'll I'll do everything I can to try to figure this out. Bob Humphrey was a pitching coordinator for the uh, Brewers at the time. And uh, he was a big help. Uh, He threw the knuckleball with the St. Louis Cardinals in the early 60s. And uh, then I started to get in touch. Once you get in that fraternity, you're talking to the Negroes and Charlie Huff. Candy Adi, Hoyt Wilhelm, and and all these guys, and, and Tim Wakefield and R.A. Dickey, everybody's in this little fraternity where we give each other tips. And uh, it, without that, I, I don't know if I would have lasted more than a couple of years, but I was able to squeak out nine because of it. Yeah, our, our mutual friend, Tim Wakefield, we, we lost him much too soon. That's right. Yeah. And we lost his wife tonight or yeah. today, uh, yeah. as a matter of fact. So, uh, Man, you know, you talk about somebody who, who was a great pitcher and he won 200 games as a major leaguer, but just a better teammate and friend uh, more than anything that Wakefield, you know, when you talk to people he played with or people that knew him around the game, he was about as well-respected as anybody the last 30 years. To underline that, 2004, 
the Red Sox win the World Series, beat the Cardinals in four straight games, game four in my hometown of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Tony La Russa, the manager of the Cardinals, came over to the Red Sox clubhouse just to congratulate Tim Wakefield. He carried that kind of cachet in the game. Wow. That, you know, that's – I just got chill bumps thinking about that. It's just a, it's such a – you know, you still grieve, you know, and can't believe that uh, he's gone. You know, he was so full of life and, and helped so many people and was so charitable and, and gracious with his time that uh, uh, he was just, you know, you feel like he was taken too soon. But, uh, you know, I'm glad he's not in pain, and, you know, and suffering or anything like that. But I was actually with Tom Candiotti. We were in Arizona this year uh, when we found out about Tim's passing. And it was tough on both of us. It was it was a tough loss. Did, did you have your own personal catcher? Yeah, a lot of times I did, you know, you know, and whoever it might be, you know, just kind of developed. Uh, Benji Molina, probably at the big league level, uh, comes to mind. Uh, he he kind of volunteered. He hadn't really caught. What would, what would a Molina know about catching? Yeah, exactly. All three um, of them. But he was willing, man. He he knew that, like, hey, this might be my shot to, to at least pitch or catch every fifth day. So uh, trying to get his feet uh, – uh, wet as a major leaguer, he thought, all right, I'm going to attach myself to Sparks for a little bit and see if this rides out. And he was great. He was very athletic. And, you know, it's usually the guys, uh, Mike Matheny was a great catcher. Brad Osmus I had, Charlie O'Brien, some guys that were just really soft with their hands that, that didn't really reach for the pitch. They were they were confident enough just to, to play it almost like a shortstop on a backhand. I, I'm sure you've seen a lot of uh, Jason Veritek and have have a lot of respect for him. And sure. he, he was he was a premier catcher, but the the day he tried to catch Tim Wakefield, that, that was that was an ugly sight to see. That's why Doug Marabelli hung around so long with the Red Sox. That's right. You know, when when you got your main catcher, especially somebody like Veritek, who was such an offensive threat anyway, if you're able to take that anxiety away, say. You know, if he, you know, if he felt anxious to, about catching Wakefield, what a perfect time to really give him a breather anyway. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of knuckleballers end up having their own catcher. Did, did you have the ability to bounce back on short rest because of the knuckleball? Oh, sure. So the big thing about that, Jerry, was, you know, you weren't relying on velocity. So if there was some soreness and there was some sort and people would go, how in the world could you be sore not throwing the ball very hard? Well, you are kind of throwing the ball hard because of the way you're gripping the ball is what really took a lot of the speed off, but uh, you weren't relying on velocity. So, you know, if, if I was sore coming back from a game or even throwing in the bullpen in between starts, things of that nature, it, it feel, still felt like I could get guys out by taking the spin off the ball. It would knuckle. I could change speeds on it, things of that nature to get guys out. So uh, it was certainly a pitch that, that gave me longevity because I wouldn't have gotten to the big leagues without it. And, and with it, uh, I was able to pitch to an advanced age just because it, it wasn't a pitch that you had to throw hard. And as you age, of course, you know you're going to lose velocity. Yeah. Were, were you finicky about your fingernails like Wakefield was? Yeah, you have to be. You know, you have to be very meticulous. Get underneath a lamp and, and cut your nails just so, usually the night before you pitched and yeah, there's a lot to it. You know, people wouldn't realize like, come on, you're just you're just putting your fingernails in a ball. You know, it's more mechanical than any other pitch just because to take the spin off the ball that you can't have any wrist roll 
things of that nature. Your hand's got to be almost in this exact same spot in your release point every time. What was what was your secondary pitch or pitches? Probably, you know, when I first signed, my curveball was kind of my calling card. I was a fifth rounder out of college and uh, had a pretty good curveball, so I could throw I could flip a curveball in there when I need to need to get back in the count or throw a strike and. Uh, one thing that I did learn, Jerry, was that, you know, if I, if, you know, I could probably still throw in the upper 80s or, or 90 miles per hour. But when I tried to throw it that hard, I would tip off the hitter and let them know that a fastball was coming. But if I dialed it back all the way back to 80 miles per hour, say, or 78 miles per hour, I stayed in the knuckleball mechanics and it was more surprising to the hitter because it looked the same. So that was something that I learned two or three years into my major league career, just to dial it back on the fastball. And that worked out pretty well. You just reminded me of a conversation I once had with a, a Hall of Fame pitcher by the name of Warren Spahn, who said mm. he said that uh, hitting is timing, pitching is messing up timing. That's beautiful. You know, he, yeah, that, that's so, that reminds me of something that Phil Necro told me, and he talked to Tim Wakefield and, and I for about three hours in the bullpen in, at Fenway one day. And I asked him about how often did you throw a good knuckleball or did you take the spin off the ball? He said, uh, probably six out of 10, seven out of 10, just depends on the day. And, and that just meant the world to me because I thought I had to throw it nine out of 10, you know, and for a Hall of Fame pitcher like Phil Necro to say that I threw a good one six or seven times out of 10, that really freed me up. And the other thing he said was, he said, the re- in, in, and because of that, because I wasn't t- throwing a good knuckleball every pitch or it wasn't dancing every pitch, I changed speeds. I would throw 155 miles per hour, then I would throw it at 68, then 75, then back down to 63. And when you change speeds and you don't throw a good knuckleball, at least you can get a guy off stride. I'll bet you've seen position players on 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 the sidelines before the game starts or during batting practice fooling around with the knuckleball. They say that Wade Boggs had a great one. Oh, yeah. You know, and a lot of guys do on flat ground. It's a lot easier to throw on flat ground. I'll tell you this, Jerry. Eighty percent of the balls that an umpire would throw back to you, at, throw back to me after a foul ball or you know a ball that's out of play. Eighty percent of the umpires would throw a knuckleball back at me and look, stare at me for my like opinion, like yeah, that's a good one, or you know, give them a thumbs up. But everybody wanted to show me their knuckleball. Oh, but it's not that easy. Steve Sparks, we appreciate the time. Uh, I hope you have a a great year. And like I said, I'm. I'm not a betting man, but I bet you're going to be working late into October. Well, fingers crossed on, on our end, but uh, we, we've been very lucky and uh, we, we hope and we're optimistic just about like everybody else is. Uh, but, but truth be told, this Astros team is very talented and uh, they've got as good a chance as anybody. Astros broadcasters Steve Sparks and Dave D'Agostino take us home. We'll do. Steve, hang on with us for a minute through the music. But what, what a great interview, Jerry and Steve. What a pleasure to have you. Uh, I thought... Uh, the way you articulate the game makes me want to listen to the Astros every night now. So I appreciate you, you coming Thanks, on. Dave. Thank hey, you we, for saying that. I appreciate it. No, I mean, gosh, you, you, uh, I love smart. And, uh, and and I think that you, you are. What are you doing with me? I, I, <laughs> I get smarter every time I do. You, you, you've taught me how to be a better interviewer. So I love it. The right. uh, Steve, one quick thing. We have 74 countries that listen to the show. Wow. And it's we have grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. But I'm particular about the grassroots what would you say to a young kid out there that wanted to start throwing the knuckleball right now? I know it's a tight fraternity, but what one little bit of advice would you give to him 
when uh, looking to start throwing a knuckleball? I would say I would say if you want to start throwing a knuckleball, look for a grip that where none of your fingers touch the seams. You know, a lot of times if even your thumb or, or your your ring finger touch the seams, it causes a drag on the ball, and that spin is what a good hitter can can see uh, to understand which direction the ball is going to go. And the secret is to take the spin off the ball. And the other thing is, let me give you one more thing, Dave, for a knuckleball, you want to keep your palm behind the ball as long as you can. So that's why it's easier to throw on flat ground. And when you throw off of a mound to keep your palm behind the baseball longer, you have to aim a lot higher. So I would tell anybody uh, who throws a knuckleball who's on top of a mound to aim at the top of the catcher's mask. That way you won't roll over and cause a little tumble on the ball. It's easier to hit. I love it. So now if we see a rash of knuckleballers in Major League Baseball in, let's say, 12 years, we know it was due to episode 475 here on Real Voices of the Game here. Right. I got it bookmarked. We got it. We'll do it. Well, Jerry, thanks for a great interview again. We, we always appreciate what you do. And to our audience, 70,000 subscribers, 74 countries, keep doing what you do. Support our sponsors because they help us bring these shows to you for free. So we mentioned millions. We mentioned jaw bats. We mentioned the kinetic arm one-on-one college pathways and also Monet. So uh, make sure we're supporting those guys as well. And with that on the record with Jerry Trupiano, episode 475 in the books. Thanks guys. You got it. Thanks for having me. Still appointed to this.